How many of you have witnessed the faithfulness of God in your life? See, y'all don't, some of y'all don't know, some of you do know. But most of y'all don't know that I was the kid who grew up being so shy that my parents got to the point where they would have to physically discipline me because I wouldn't speak back to people when they talked to me. People petrified me. I was scared of my own shadow. I wasn't going to get up in front of anybody. I wasn't going to sing in front of anybody. I was just going to keep to myself. No matter where I went, if I could find a corner to stand in by myself and not say a word to anybody, I'd be completely content with that and consider it a win because I didn't have to get put in an awkward situation. See, that's how I know the faithfulness of God because I stand here now. Not of my own doing. Because left up to me, in a room like this, I'd be in the back cringing. I'd be like in a fetal position in a corner somewhere, just hoping somebody didn't come up and force a conversation with me. That's how I know that God is faithful. Because he put a calling upon my life, and he pulled me out, and he set me apart to do something amazing and to do something special for his kingdom. So if you think you can't be used... I can assure you, you can in ways in which you could never imagine because our God is a faithful God. He can use your life as a testimony to his goodness and the greatness of his glory if you'll allow him to do just that. But hey, I want us to meet up in the book of John and specifically chapter 3 where I believe God has something laid out to share with us from tonight. Y'all remember the days when you like couldn't dress yourself and your parents would like lay your clothes out for you to go to school? Maybe some of y'all can't relate to that, but I was, I was that kid, like, I was incapable of finding anything that matched, and when school came around, when I was in elementary school, I remember walking there, my mom would be like, I've already got your clothes laid out for you, so just put what I've got on in there. Don't deviate from that in any way, form, or fashion. Just go ahead and put, out, put on what I put out for you, and we'll call it good for the rest of the day. In the same kind of sense, I think God has laid something out particular for us tonight from his word, and he doesn't want us to deviate from what it is exactly that he desires to give to us from John chapter 3, which I believe might be one of the most epic chapters in all of Scripture. There is so much that takes place in this one particular chapter. We could spend an entire year trying to unpack it. But there's something specific here that God made known to me that I want to share with you guys tonight. Last week, we focused in on the preeminence of Christ and how he is superior, how he is to be above all things, and how as believers he should be preeminent in our lives as well. We should hold Christ in superiority over all things in our lives. He should reign supreme over every other thing that we have going on in our lives. Tonight I want us to walk that principle out just a little further. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to last week's text, Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to grab that real quick just to set this up as a quick reminder. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be Preeminent. Remember, this is the only time in Scripture that we see this actual word preeminent being used. But the principle of Jesus' preeminence 
his superiority, especially as it pertains to the life of a believer, is found all over Scripture. One such instance is where we find ourselves settled here in John chapter 3. And as we enter into the passage, we find John the Baptist, who I will reference to from here on out as JTB to save us some time. John the Baptist, JTB, in case you aren't familiar with who he is, John was an anointed, chosen vessel of God who was to precede Jesus and to proclaim his coming. He and Jesus would have actually been earthly cousins. Mary and John's mother, Elizabeth, were sisters. So earthly cousins with Jesus. He was to precede him in his arrival and his ministry here on the earth. He was to prepare people for Christ's coming. And so at the point of our entrance, he has recently even just been given the opportunity to baptize Jesus. Imagine what that must have been like. What an opportunity for John to have. And so he's recently just baptized Jesus to signal the start of Christ's ministry here on the earth. And afterwards, this discussion kicks up. And that's where we enter in in John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, where God's word says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So they're referencing Jesus right here. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. Finish this statement for me. Everybody's going to participate if you know the answer. It's a participation question. So finish this statement for me. If you ain't first, for the next few moments that we had together, let's talk from the frame of increasing or decreasing. Last week, the challenge was, is Jesus superior or secondary in our life. This week, the challenge is, is he increasing or decreasing in our life? For some time now, John had been preaching that people should repent from their sins and turn to God. And for those who did, John would then take them and he would baptize them. Then Jesus shows up and he continues the message that John has been preaching. So for a while now, John has, has been preceding Christ's coming and he's telling all these people, you need to repent because the kingdom of God is near. The way is coming. The way under righteousness, the way under restoration, the way under redemption, the way that we are going to be forgiven of our sins and restored back to a right relationship with the Father is on his way. He is, he is nearer than you even realize. And then once Jesus shows up, he continues the message that John has been preaching, except he takes it a step further and he says, John's been telling you about the way. I'm telling you that I am the way. That's me. No one is going to come to the Father except coming through me. 
repent of your sins, turn in faith to me, let me wash you clean so that your relationship with my Father can be restored. And as people in faith believed upon Jesus, Jesus would have his disciples baptize them as well. Now, don't let the text confuse you because it says that Jesus was baptizing. But John would later clarify that in chapter 4 when he says Jesus didn't actually baptize anybody, but he would have his disciples do it for them. So as people would, in faith, come to Christ, Jesus would pass them off to his disciples. They would baptize them as a symbol of the inward faith that they had placed in Christ for the remission of their sins. And so this discussion is brought to John, and his buddies are like, hey, man, uh, you, you know what this Jesus guy is doing, right? He's, he's baptizing people, his disciples, they're baptizing people too, just like you are, and they're claiming that we're to forsake all and follow after him. Tell me you see this, John, right? Because like this is what you've been doing the whole time. Like You've been telling people they need to repent from their sins, that they need to be baptized, and, and people have been following you and understanding and, and looking into the teachings that you're giving them on what it's like to have a relationship with God, and now here's this Jesus guy. We're not real sure about him. We're not sure what his deal is, but he's preaching the same message, and they're baptizing people, and all these people are kind of leaving our camp, John. They're going over there. You know this is going on, right? Like we're losing followers. And the way that JTB responds shows us the heart of someone who understands the preeminence of Jesus. This is what it looks like for us to decrease and Jesus increase, for him to be superior. So the heart of someone who has Christ increasing in their lives is always quick to recognize the source of their purpose. If you go back into the text and you look in verse 27, as John begins to dialogue with his buddies, he says this in response, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So the first thing that John addresses with these people who were his supporters is to help him see that the only reason that he had a ministry, the only reason that he had a calling, the only reason that he had a purpose, the only reason any of that existed in the first place was because God gave it to him. He didn't see it as his own. He understood that it was given to him by God. As a matter of fact, he would testify to that fact. When his birth was announced to his father in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, the angel said to him, he's speaking to He's speaking to John's dad right here. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And you must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God had a purpose and a plan and a calling placed upon John's life before he was ever even born. And John understood that, and as he's having this conversation with his friends, they're like, man, you know what this Jesus guy is doing, right? Like he's, he's doing his own thing. He's trying to copycat or whatever, and John's like, okay, well, let me let you in on something, fellas. This calling was never mine to begin with. I never took this up for myself. I never placed this purpose upon myself. This was a God-given thing. He placed this upon my life. In the heart of someone who holds Jesus in preeminence over their life, they don't claim purpose for themselves. 
They don't claim calling. They don't claim blessing as it's some kind of possession, some kind of mantle that they take up for themselves. They receive it as a gift that's been given to them. That's exactly what John said. If you look at it in verse 27, his answer back was, a person cannot receive even one thing. He said, this is a gift that was given to me. I didn't claim this for myself. I didn't carve this out on my own volition. This was a God-given thing. If Jesus is increasing in your life, if he is above all in your life, if he is truly superior in your life, then you as well will be someone who is quick to recognize and give credit to the reality that the reason your life has purpose, the reason your life has calling, is because Christ gave it to you. It is a gift from him. And even beyond the context of purpose, let's get beyond the context of purpose for a minute. Let's just talk about life in general. Every blessing that we have has been given to us by the grace of God. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. My health is a blessing. When Jesus holds preeminence in in my life, I began to realize and understand and give recognition very quick to the fact that every blessing, every good thing that I have in my life has come from him. So my health is a blessing. My finances are a blessing. I don't care how minimal they are. They're a blessing. My house is a blessing. The fact that I've got a vehicle that can drive me from point A to point B, even though it may get stuck in between those two places from time to time, is still a blessing to have. Air conditioning is a blessing. Man, I really thought that would hit a little bit different. I like My family is a blessing. The clothes that I have on my body that I go home and find in my drawers and my closet are a blessing. How many of y'all got so many clothes? Y'all, y'all got clothes you ain't ever even worn in 10 to 12 years. You can't even get to the back of your closet. Oh, that's a blessing from God. Our freedom is a blessing from God. The fact that you get to further your education is a blessing from God. Not everybody has these things in their life. And those of us that understand that, that Christ is preeminent over all things, and I see every good thing that we have in our life as being a blessing that was benefited towards us through the grace and mercy of God. And you're like, yeah, I get that, Trey. Like, I, I can give God credit for blessing. I can give God credit for the good things. What about the bad things? Does that not come from God too? Absolutely. 100%. Let's try and make a point out of that. Let me show you this. Even if I'm sick, I've got a great physician. Even if I'm poor, I have an inheritance. Even if I'm attacked, I've got an advocate. Even if I'm abandoned, still adopted. Even if I'm afflicted, I have a comforter. Don't tell me that every good and perfect gift doesn't come from above. Even if I don't see it as being good and perfect, there's still good and perfect in it. The heart that holds Jesus in preeminence recognizes, I came into this world with nothing. When you came out of your mama's womb, you know what you had? Nothing. The only thing that you might have had to claim as your own was an umbilical cord, and they cut that off, took it away from you. My heart realizes in Christ's preeminence that I came into this world with nothing. So guess what that means? All that I have had to be given to me. 
even, even when John's friends tried to pump him up, like I can't, I can't fault John's friends. Like he's got a good hype group. Like he's got some boys in his corner. I can appreciate that to an extent. How many, how many of you guys are thankful you got some boys that you know got your back? That you got some boys that you know will go to war with you in the most desperate of times. These are, these are John's boys. They're like, John, man, what, hey, we got to do something about this Jesus guy. Like what is going on? We got to go over and straighten him out or something. And, and even when they're trying to pump him up, John, you going to let this slide? John, who is this guy compared to you? Come on, John, you're legit. Your ministry is legit. Your following is legit. Your influence is legit. Even in the midst of that, John reminded them that Jesus was the reason he was given any of that to begin with. Listen to me real closely right here. If we aren't careful, we'll take a God-given platform and turn it into a self-made product. When we slip out of holding Christ in preeminence over our lives, that platform that he gave you will be something that you begin to start taking credit for real quick. I'm self-made. It's a very, very, very dangerous thing. That's why it is vitally important that we make sure we keep Christ increasing in our lives. When that happens... Self is attempting to increase while the Savior is being decreased in our lives. So let me ask you, who's getting the recognition for the life that you're living? Who's out in front? Who's the one that you're quick to deflect to as being the source behind all the good things you've got going in your life, all the purpose you've got in your life, all the calling you've got in your life, all the direction that you've got in your life? Who's grabbing all the recognition for that? Is that Christ and his preeminence? Are you walking around like you're self-made? For those of us that, that know Jesus, and we start holding him in preeminence, we'll be quick to give him the recognition for all things. Beyond that, the person who has a heart that has Christ increasing readily will place Christ at the center. So you go back and look at verse 28. John says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John reminds these people of something he's already told them, and it's quite simply this. I'm not Jesus. <laughs> if you go back in the text a little bit, in chapter 1, verse 19, he says this, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, John says, I, I'm, not, I'm not Jesus, guys. And don't put that upon me. Let me just throw something in there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's just a little nugget for some of you. Some of you could experience a lot more freedom if you stop trying to be someone you're not. What a glorious burden it would have been on John if he would have tried to have acted like he was Jesus. Can you imagine the burden that would have placed upon him to even act 
as if he was the Messiah. And yet some of us on the daily are adding burdens upon our lives that you're not meant to carry because of your insecurities and your devaluing of self, listening to the whispers of the enemy in your ear, trying to be somebody that God never called you to be. John says, I'm not, I'm not Jesus. Let's make this plain and simple before we move on any further. I'm not Jesus. So to do something readily, because I said a person who has Christ increasing in their life readily places Christ at the center. To do something readily means to do it without hesitation or reluctance. It's to do whatever that thing is willingly. So John, without hesitance or reluctance, let these people know that Jesus belongs at the center. He says, I'm just a messenger. He's the Messiah. Don't put me center stage in this. All I did was come before him to prepare a way. Now that he's here, I'm gone. See y'all later. I don't care if you ever come to me again. I don't care if you forget who I am. Jesus takes center stage. And then he goes on to, to give this imagery of a wedding ceremony. And I love what he does here. So I want y'all to get a good picture of this. So I've asked some people to help me out. So come on, Adam, Katie, Matt, I need you guys to help me out for just a second. I want you to get a, a good look at what the imagery of this would have looked like and how deep the teachable point is. Adam and Katie, newlyweds, just got married this summer. Let's give it up for the newlyweds. So there's a reason why I asked them to go ahead and come up here and do this, because this is very practical for them. Uh, let's give it up for Matt, our, our student pastor. He's going to be Adam's best man. Congratulations, bro. So John says, Look at, this, look at this imagery, look at this picture of a wedding ceremony. Because he goes on to talk about how once the bridegroom shows up, he's the one who has the bride. And so you guys, I would assume, most everybody in this room has been to a wedding at some point. <laughs> Distraction of the Satan right there. And he just got swatted in the name of Jesus. So come on, come on, let's center stage. We're going we're gonna to reenact the, the marriage ceremony a little bit. When we, when we have a wedding ceremony, one thing you know we always are very intentional to do with the bride and the groom is to do what? We put them center stage. They're not off to the side. They're not adjacent to anything or anybody. We put the bride and the groom center stage, and then everybody else fills in around them. And so John says, uh, to help you guys understand, this is what this looks like Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the groomsman who has come for his bride, and he is going to take center stage. Now, weddings are very serious events. We don't typically goof off during the wedding ceremony. It's not a time to, to joke or laugh. Or like they're very serious. They're very intimate moments. And so we have the bride and the bridegroom taking center stage. And over here, we have the best man. Now, the best man is important but he's not the most important thing. The best man is here for one reason and one reason only. That's to give support to his groom. The guy that he is there to, to help, that's his boy. <laughs> and so the funny thing about this is, is, is never would we ever dream of and never would the best man ever dream of cutting in front of the groom. 
Hey, hey, man, hey, hey I know y'all got a good thing going, but scoot over. I'm taking control. We wouldn't ever dream of that. No one would ever dream of doing that. It would be ridiculous. It would be absurd for this man to take the position of the one who's rightly supposed to be there. Agreed? That would, that would never happen. And yet, I wonder what we do with Jesus sometimes. Who's supposed to be in his rightful place, John says. And yet, how many times, out of our own arrogance, out of our own selfishness, are we the ones who are supposed to stand at Christ's side, follow in his footsteps, support the ministry that he is taking on, give him center stage, yet walk up and say, excuse me, Jesus. Move, Jesus. Seems ridiculous, does it not? And yet when we do not hold him in preeminence, that's exactly what it looks like. Thank you, guys. We take Jesus and we push him out of the center so that in turn we can take center stage. When we choose to not hold Jesus in preeminence, John says this is exactly the image that we have. John's friends, you know, I think, I think they had good intentions. I'm trying to make sure I don't scratch the stage up here. Probably buff out, don't you think? Maybe. John's friends, I think they had good intentions, but they didn't see what they were doing exactly. And I don't know if you caught on to the fact or not, but first they wanted John to compare himself with Jesus. He says, I'm not going to do that. And when that didn't work, they wanted John to compete with Jesus. He says, I wouldn't dare do that. I would not dare try to take center stage away from the one who rightly should be there. There's no way I'm going to do that. Listen, a heart that increases Jesus, a heart that holds him preeminent, doesn't compete with Christ for position. It celebrates in Christ having position. John says, now that he's here, I rejoice. I celebrate him. I'm so thankful that he has entered into this moment because this is prophecy fulfilled. This is salvation realized. This is years and years and years and years and years of prophecy being fulfilled in this moment. This is the realization that God really did what he said he was going to do and did not leave us hopeless and helpless and in our despair and in our destruction, but he has sent his son. And John did not hesitate for one moment to bow out of the way. And let Jesus take a center stage. In the same way, we shouldn't hesitate to put Jesus at the center of all things. And a heart that is holding him in preeminence, a heart that desires to see Christ increase and to see ourself be decreased, will do just that. It will place him at the center of all things, and it won't dare try to remove him from the spot that's rightfully his. One last thing. A heart that has Jesus increasing considers it a joy to become less than. So if you go back and look in verse 29, he says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
he must increase, but I must decrease. At the end of his dialogue, John makes it known that this is a joyous occasion for him. He says, I celebrate this. And this, is, this is awesome. John didn't get upset. John didn't get disappointed. He didn't get disgusted with Jesus being Jesus. You ever get upset with Jesus being Jesus sometimes? You don't have to look at me all religious. We all do. Sometimes we get upset with the Lord of our life being the Lord of our life. Sometimes it's, it's easy for us to want to usurp his authority. For us to want to cut his legs out from under him so we can take the throne back. But John didn't get upset. He didn't get disgusted. He didn't get let down over the fact that Jesus was there being Jesus and doing Jesus things. Jesus, uh, John knew that, that this is the Lord. That he is the Savior. That he is God manifest. He says, I'm happy to move out of the way and follow him. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 1, verse 29, he would say this, that the next day when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And you skip down a few more verses, and he would later make the same declaration as Jesus walks by him again on another day. He says, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. For those of us who know Jesus, who have submitted and surrendered to his lordship in our lives, it should be our joy to have him be preeminent. We should look at it as a, as a reason to celebrate. It should make us giddy to see ourselves decrease and thus see Jesus increase in our lives. I don't know about y'all, but when I get glimpses of those moments, because I battle, I struggle, I got flesh, I'm, I'm as selfish as they come. But when I get a glimpse of those moments where God lets me see that, that the Word's really getting in, that it really is changing and transforming my life, when, when I see myself doing things that I know in and of my own selfish, fleshly nature I can't not do, and God leads me away from that to, to choose His Spirit over my flesh, those kind of moments, it, it gets me giddy. Because I'm like, this is real. This is not, it's not some fairy tale. It's not some made-up story. He really does change lives. He really does transform hearts. And I told you earlier, like, I have no other explanation for why I stand here week in and week out and do this. If it wasn't for Christ, I would have other things to do. I would find other things to do. I would find other places to be. But because He's real, because He has changed my life, because He really is the Lamb of God who took away my sins and took away my selfishness and placed the calling upon my life, I'll stand here week in and week out until I'm blue in the face telling you guys about the goodness and the greatness and the life-changing, transforming power of the gospel of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. We know He's worthy. Those of you that have come to faith in Him, you know that He is life abundant. We know that He is greater than anything this world has to afford or offer. Do we live like it? This is so important as we finish up. Please hear this. John concludes by saying this in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He's talking about Jesus. Yet no one receives his testimony. 
Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. As John finishes, he's speaking to these people who are on the fence about Jesus. They're just unsure. They don't know if he really is the Messiah or not. They don't really know if this is somebody that they should follow, if this is somebody that they should pursue. They've been with John for a long time now. They're, they're, they're faithful supporters. And as Jesus has come on the scene, they're just kind of unsure. They, they don't know exactly if this is real or not, if this really is somebody that they should surrender their lives to completely and follow after. And John's giving them a warning. He's telling them, listen, you gotta, you got to hear the testimony of the Lamb of God. And the warning is this, he's telling them, don't let selfishness cause you to miss out on salvation. Jeez, man, like, so many people miss out on Jesus because they think he's gonna be a drag, because they think he's some kind of a bus kill. They hear words like surrender and die to self and forsake all things and leave behind family and friends and comfort and home. And they think, man, what a drag it would be to follow after Jesus. And in those moments of selfishness, behold the Lamb of God. John says, here he comes. If you're not careful in your selfishness, he's going to walk right on by. And you're going to miss out on the salvation that he has to offer. There is, there is nothing more fulfilling than Jesus. There's nothing more satisfying than a life surrendered to Christ. Listen, you want, Jesus says you want to gain everything, lose this life and find life in me. The only way you're going to find that to be true, John says, that the only way you're going to find out the testimony is true is to receive it. You've got to let go of your life. And you've got to grab a hold of Christ. So many people miss out because they think, man, i got things like I like them. My life is good. It's not great. It's good. I have fun. I'm comfortable. I don't know. Jesus, Jesus just seems risky to me. He is. But the difference is, he's worth the risk. You take risk every day playing games with the world, it's never going to pay dividends. It's going to bankrupt you. Jesus says, I'm worth it. Come after me. If you ain't first, what position is Jesus in in your life?